Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 81 here, Sam Levowitz, Jack Hendon, our first as college graduates. Jack, congratulations on, I know, a long time coming for you, finishing up at Haverford. I'm done at Syracuse as well. I'm back in New Jersey and we have lots to talk about this week. Yeah. Well, congrats to you as well. Big deal, dude. Moving on. You got, uh, yeah, you've got... It's been a weird feeling. We didn't record last week because, yeah. you know, we usually record on Sundays. This is Sunday night when we're recording right now. Uh, and last Sunday was the day that I graduated college. So it didn't really make sense to, you know, record on, on a Sunday. And then moving out of the apartment was hellish. And as I'm sure that you know, moving in general is a pain in the ass. And it definitely was... This week with me and my roommates, but I am back. I've got about two weeks of downtime now, about a week and a half before I head over to Cape Cod for the summer. That's right. To start uh, my coverage over there with the Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox, the Cape Cod Baseball League. Um, but for now, this is the focus uh, podcast, churning out some content for you guys, starting here with episode 81. That's right. 81, dude. You know what I realized today was that J.D. Davis played in the Cape Cod League. I did not know that. Oh, yeah? Who was he with? He played for the Chatham Anglers in 2013. Uh, Chatham, um, yes. Chatham, the, sorry. The um, uh, Chatham is one of the, like, the premier – I think they're one of the original four Cape Cod teams. Yeah. And they're, they're, the, they're yeah. the team – uh, they used to be called the Chatham A's. They're the team that uh, Freddie Prince Jr. played on in the 2001 romantic comedy Summer Catch starring him and Jessica Biel. Oh, God, I wish we were back at the time when I wasn't remembering that he did that. that movie <laughs> yeah, that takes terrible. place. That movie takes place on Cape Cod oh. during a summer in the CCBL. I'm sorry if you can hear my cat. Being home also means that I'm back with this nuisance of an animal. My um, stepdad's who, watching Avengers in the room behind me, so oh yeah, I hear the Avengers playing. Oh, I have always two two episodes in a row that were were MCU chatting. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I like MCU Park. What about it? <laughs> ah, go uh, oh, uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, sorry. Episode eighty-one. Let's pull it back to baseball. The Mets are still playing good baseball. There is negative stuff that we will get into pretty much immediately. Just a quick. Quickly to go over, they took three of four from the Cardinals at City Field, and then they uh, took two of three this weekend from the Rockies. Obviously, there's been more since we last spoke to you because we were off last week in terms of recording. But for the uh, you know purposes of keeping relatively up to date, those are the last seven for the Mets. They're five and two in their last seven over the last two series. They've still only lost the one series that came against the Mariners. I don't think we ever actually chatted about that series uh because that happened yes that happened over graduation weekend doesn't yeah. matter they optioned Kalanick it, it didn't matter nearly as much Paul Seawald did of, the Hulk Hogan thing and some yeah. people got mad like they deprived us of our content that's really all that matters the Mets lost the series ho home who really cares they well, just Mazika, swept. there was there was Mazika but whatever. well yeah that was cool but we'll get, an, we'll get another one he'll give and us the, then Trevor Story made the Red Sox or made the Mariners his you know, bitch and hit like five homers against them in, in a four game set. And yeah. that was cool. And they swept the Mariners. So felt like those two teams were playing all friggin' week. I, I don't know. It was felt like a lot happened in that Red Sox series. Franchi Cordero had a walk off grand slam today. That was really cool. Uh, in Mets land, 
five and two on field results. Good. Off the field results, injury wise, less good. Max Scherzer started in the was it the second game of the doubleheader against the Cardinals? Um, no, I believe it was an indiv- it was the it was the one night that they it was Wednesday night. It was the night after the doubleheader, the eleven four win. Sure, um, and it was the yeah. the day before the Pete Alonso walk off home run. Yes, in, in which in the sixth inning he had been pitching really well. The Mets were up in the game, and he threw a pitch. Uh, the second pitch of an at bat and immediately looked at the Mets dugout and said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Um, And the Mets came and got him and pulled him from the game. And the hope was that he avoided serious injury by pulling himself from the game when he felt a tweak. As it turns out, it was a oblique strain, a moderate to high grade one. So he did not avoid um, serious injury. They're calling it a six to eight week timetable, but if it is really a bad oblique injury, even that seems uh, optimistic for Max Scherzer. He's going to miss two months uh, is is the point here. Uh, And it's disappointing because now this team that built one of the best one-two punches that baseball has ever seen, both of these guys are going to be on the shelf probably until the all-star break uh, Mm -hmm. at least, which as fans stinks because we don't get to watch Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer. We've already had to endure, you know, a quarter season of not getting to watch Jacob deGrom pitch. Right. And now Max Scherzer joins him on the shelf. Of course, Tyler McGill is also uh, banged up, although he's resumed throwing um, with his shoulder soreness, whatever that they wound up. It was biceps tendonitis, I think. It was, it was, it was a scary uh, two words, but... Well, his mom told us that it was just some soreness or whatever it was, you know, Julie McGill. But a scratch. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be back on a mound shortly. And sure enough, he is throwing again. So hopefully he's back before too, too long, but right now the rotation is relatively in shambles. We're getting another David Peterson start. He's coming up from triple A to start the giant series this week. And then the Wednesday game, the day game, the final game in San Francisco uh, is a TBD game. uh, Really as a result of the, doubleheader in Colorado pushing Carlos Carrasco a day back mm-hmm. that would be his turn but now it's an open slot and it looks like we're going to get Thomas Zapucky up from AAA he's one of the only um, non-active roster starting pitchers that they've got on the 40-man roster uh, and he is flying to meet the team in San Francisco looks like he'll get the ball at least for a few innings on Wednesday um, it was really disappointing to see the Scherzer news uh, to see it happen live was very very scary um thankfully it is not arm related i think that's the silver lining here is that this is nothing to do with the shoulder or with the elbow or any of the important ligaments in the structure of the arm uh and hopefully as soon as that oblique is kind of up to snuff again and and able to you know allows him to move at a higher capacity he can resume throwing pretty much immediately which is still probably going to be six weeks at least yeah yeah and it's going to be six weeks I think that we're missing the DeGrom Scherzer duo as as you refer to it I mean the the obvious issue here that I'm having is thinking about those next six weeks uh how this rotation is going to look in those next six weeks right it's it's you know you're pretty much at this point you're out of reinforcements too I mean you said it Thomas Zapucky is the next guy to fill this you know, this hole, so to speak, 
Um, it's Chris Bassett is the ace. Carlos Carrasco is the two. Taiwan Walker, who was walking around with heat pads on his back not too long ago, is the three. Um, and then four might be, um, I mean, when McGill comes back, hopefully he, I guess, assumes three and we move Walker to four. Um, but after that, it's, you know, if something happens to David Peterson, um, if something happens to Trevor Williams, who's obviously not available because he pitched in Saturday's game, like you really, your back's against the wall again, and we're back in 2021. And that's something that I worry a lot about. I also worry about how the team itself is going to function, uh, as a unit, as a clubhouse without Scherzer there. I mean, that's not to say there aren't real leaders in that. Um, in that space, right? I mean, Starling Marte came back on Saturday and we immediately just saw something amazing, something great. And he's obviously someone that uh, the team probably missed while he was on the bereavement list. Chris Bassett is a very smart pitcher. Carlos Carrasco is a great pitcher, great guy. Um, but Scherzer not being there. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the clip of him um, handing the bottle of champagne to Eduardo Escobar uh, for achieving 10 years in the big leagues. But I mean, you really understand that this is basically the guy that they give their toast to. He's the guy that stands up and speaks for the team. Um, and he's going to be in Florida rehabbing for a very long time. And, um, like, you know, like I said, they, there are a lot of good guys there. This is not a situation in which they've had their legs cut out from under them. But um, we're at, at best, we're missing a lot of great stories. Um, and that's sort of a bummer for me. Yeah, six weeks worth of starts for both of those pitchers is is significant. And this team has played really good baseball. They played sound baseball the entire season, the 13 games above 500. They've got a large lead in the NL East right now. There's really no reason to freak out and to assume that the wheels are going to fall off this team right now. Um, as long as they continue to, you know, keep themselves afloat really for the next two months, we should wake up, at the all-star break and in pretty prime position to still be in a similar spot that we're in now. Mm -hmm. uh, with that said, if it gets any worse than this, then you start, you know, then you have the necessity to start piecing together innings and starts from guys that were not even close to your preseason plans. The team signed, right. the team signed Trevor Cahill, uh, the veteran sinker baller to a minor league contract. He's heading to Syracuse. He's going to be this year's Vance Worley, I guess, uh, and, and hope that we never have to see him in the big leagues because this is a guy who had an ERA approaching seven last year in Anaheim uh, definitely got cut. And I don't really think that he's a capable major league pitcher anymore, despite, you know, ab about what, seven or eight years of big league service time. I don't really think that he's going to, cut it anymore and uh if he winds up on the 40-man roster this team is probably not in great shape starting pitching wise you can survive with the with the starting rotation as is right now you could probably do without having to piece together any more double headers for a while yeah. um because those have been kind of killer there's been a lot of those recently they had two this week yeah um and obviously that complicates things from a pitching standpoint because you have to piece together 18 innings and that's a lot harder than having to piece together nine innings every day yeah in terms of what we've got ahead of us right now there's a tough stretch coming up yeah uh and not having scherzer be a worst case scenario stopper 
in case this team goes on their first skid of the season uh, is, is not great. I mean, they've got the three against the giants coming up. They've got a seven game homestand against the Phillies and nationals. That should be fine. They've played well against the Phillies this year and not worried about the Nats. Yeah. And then they head back out West and they have four against the Dodgers. And then they have the Padres and the angels who have been, good this year so this is not an easy stretch the the phillies and the nationals are really as close as you have to a break uh, yeah. within the next 26 games uh so it's it's going to be interesting it's yeah. it's going to be really interesting um to see where this team is when we look up and hopefully max scherzer is back on a mound for the mets um and you just hope that this team can continue to play well and continue to pitch well with what they have. Uh, and we are not floundering by the time that these guys come back. And, and, you know, you don't want it to be a situation where they struggle through June and when you got, you get your pieces back, it's too little too late, yeah. which I don't think yeah. is going to be the case because this team has just played really good baseball this year. And it hasn't just been in games where max was starting. So I'm not, I'm not too, too worried, especially if McGill comes back sooner rather than later. I think this team should be fine, but will they be fine is a situation where it remains to be seen. Well, I just, I really, it's for me, it's like, we're not, we've never come up against competition in this sort of order at all this year. And that's not to say we've had it easy, right? Because this team has beaten the Cardinals quite a bit. That's a pretty good team on paper. Um, I mean, they've played, they, they've played well, I think I would say against the Phillies who I doubt are going to be this bad all season. Um, I mean, I sort of, I get the impression at least uh, that a team to this point that has only lost consecutive games once is set up for a pretty bad 22 games. And this is just off of, you know, this is purely off of, the premonition and just the narratives that go season to season uh, than anything else, because I think this team is probably a lot better than they're much better equipped than last year's team was to handle a stretch like this. I just don't think we're really prepared as a, as a fan base uh, to see just how much better the Dodgers are than us, or just how much better even um, the Brewers might be than us. When we go back home after Los Angeles, we have three games with them. It's a 22-game stretch um, against I, you know, five really good teams. Um, I don't know. I mean, if they come out of this, if they come out of this the way they've come out of the first 43 games this year, proportionally, like if they win 16 of these games, um, or if they win, I guess 16 would be a lot, right? But let's say even that they win 14 games um, that brings them up to 19 games over 500. It probably moves them up ahead of the Braves and Phillies even further. Um, and the smooth sailing only gets smoother. Um, I also just am very familiar. I'm, I really like that. Just never, it, it, it's never that easy in the middle of June for this team. It just, it never is. Um, it's never so that fun. easy, but yeah. it's never that easy, but this is, it's such a weirdly different team. That's also true. I'm just tempering my optimism, I think, because it's, really it's, yeah. Which it's is an important so thing to do. This point. It's, it's an important thing to do, but they have been so good this year, yeah. uh, especially bouncing back 
from tough games and from losses. They've lost now in game. They've won 14 games in a row following a loss. They've only lost once following a loss the entire season. Yes. They're 14 and one following losses. That's remarkable. Yeah, no, it really is. I doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. They build on losses and they build on wins. And there's a reason why on May 22nd, we're looking at a team that's 13 games under over 500, which is a really, it's a, that's a tough lead to build for yourself this early into a season. No, Uh, I mean, yeah, I would just, okay. I'll backtrack a little bit because I think that this is easily in my experience, watching this team to this point in a season. So from 2006 to now, I would say that this team is the most likely team to come out of this even better than they are going into it since 2006. I I will say that. I just, I really like just, I'm literally only speaking to the historical experience that I've had. Um, We're really a big point in the year though. I think that's really the the biggest thing. I didn't want to, I, I did not want to frame this as though I don't think that they will do it. I just, I, I'll believe it when I see it yeah. and I'll be stoked if I do see it. I'll believe more than just it. If I see it. I think that's fair. I think that this team has shown a lot um, with the types of games they've won. I think that the fact that they finished up five and two against a good Cardinals team and that they won three or four from a good giants team the first time around against San Francisco, I think is very telling that all these games are not coming against um, an ill-equipped Phillies team or a tanking Nationals team. It's it's not all Nationals. It's not all Phillies. Um, a lot of them have come against the Nats and Phillies, but not all of them. Um, they got a lot of games of the Marlins coming up too. I they mean, haven't played the Marlins you know? yet. They haven't yeah. played the Marlins yet. Not once. They've still got 12 games against the Nationals remaining, which I'm licking my chops at. Uh, there's, But there is a lot of winning teams coming up. And it's a little more daunting when you don't have Max Scherzer going every fifth day. Again, I'm sorry for the cat. I've, he's been very, very loud since we started recording. He's upset uh, about Max. You know, no, you know what he's saying? Uh, he's saying that you guys need to sign Bartolo Colon. I really hope not. I have, man, I hope not. Because but, uh, no, I, I'm sorry. We don't need to belabor that. I interrupted you. We can certainly discuss it briefly because yeah. there's the topic of now that this team is quote unquote aceless. No offense to Chris Bassett, who's been very good. Uh, they're without a true, true ace, which is coming from a place of absolute privilege where we started with two otherworldly pitchers, and now we have none for the next six to eight weeks. Uh, that comes from a place of privilege that we are lucky to be able to say that we had two in the first place, yeah. um, even if we only really saw them in one spring training start pitched back-to-back. Uh, it's... It, I don't even, I've lost my train of thought. You've thrown me off with the Bartolo thing because. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, we were talking about that. They're playing winning teams. Yeah. They're, Uh, they have played good teams is the point. And there's a lot of winning teams to follow. And then you kind of have a bit of a break and you get to play the Marlins a bunch. You get to play the nationals a bunch. There's still more series against the Phillies coming up before the all-star break. Uh, I think this is a good baseball team. I wish they were hitting better. I wish they were hitting more power. I wish this team had a little more thump. Uh, and I think that's another topic that we want to talk about today. Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that there's a whole lot of blue on a lot of our hitters savant pages. Uh, 
and the best hitter on the team right now is Luis Guillorme. Um, yeah. Well, so there's, yeah. There, I, there's improvements. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't hit a single home run in Colorado in three games yeah. in Colorado. They only scored, only scored 10 runs in a series in Colorado, which yes, it snowed. Yes. It was below 60 degrees the entire weekend in Denver. Um, still surprising, um, especially yeah. considering the Rockies were also hitting for power um, a little bit, at least in the one game that they won in that series. Yeah, so well, let's let's Brian Servin, right? Brian Brian's serving up some homers. Yeah. Um, that I was like, who is this kid? Twenty-seven-year-old minor leaguer. Yeah, um, it was his second career game. Like, what is he? Jesus? Come on. Nah, he's just Brian Servin. He's, he's just, just serving he's up a guy named Brian Servin. He's like, just serving up some dingers. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But let's let's backtrack a little bit. I think yeah. we got to go back to that Cardinals series because Max Scherzer leaves that game. Right. Everyone is holding their breath. Everyone is freaking out. Uh, the team wins that game handily, anyways, by seven runs. Uh, was never really a concern. They tacked on a bunch late in that game, yeah. and then the next day, they turn uh, an extra inning deficit into a walk off win which was real fun. Not just a walk-off win, a walk-off bomb. It like, was... And that was a bomb with a capital B. That ball went up and it kept going. Uh, it was so good that Keith basically blew his load into the mic as the ball was flying out, which we'll, we'll also talk about because there's some fun banter about that. But like he, and after, I mean, we didn't get to talk about the Mariners series, but I think what stuck with most fans about that series and just in the fact that it was the first one that they lost was that it ended with them coming so close to a comeback, but both Starling Marte and Pete Alonso with third and second and one out, just having awful at-bats in the clutch, right? And then Pete turns it around the following series and ends the series um, against a team that had been throwing up and in at him like it was a separate sport from baseball and he turns a fastball inside and hits it that far. I mean, that in itself, if we're talking about this team in October, that's going to be like, not even talking amazing finishes. That's going to be something that we, we talk about for a long time. And the it's, fact that they did one. that the day that we all learned as a fan base and as an, as an organization, potentially, I don't know, but the Max Scherzer was going to be missing those six to eight weeks. I mean, it was very, because the Scherzer news broke and then people forget, but Edwin Diaz did blow a save and it wasn't his fault that he blew the save. It was a kicked ball by Eduardo Escobar that with two out scored the tying run from third. It should have ended the game. Uh, I was certain as that was happening in succession with the Scherzer news that we had had our fun and now the fun was over. We are entering, you know, meltdown made begins. The team does what it usually does. I mean, all the, you know, all the histrionics like just come out when I, when I saw that play, like I was convinced it was over. And then just, just like that, like Pete, just second pitch in the bottom of the tent, uh, just goes yard, like can't make it up. Amazing finish. And then some, your loss will be featured on amazing finishes. (laughs) Yes. I I make a motion to nominate Giovanni Gallegos and by proxy TJ McFarland, to yeah. be the new Sean Doolittles insofar as every time they face the Mets, the Mets just have their number. Uh, yeah. Because if you'll remember Gallegos 
blew that save in St. Louis, that remarkable two-out um, comeback win that they had. McFarland came in and relieved him and gave up a home run on his first pitch to Brandon Nimmo. McFarland right. gave up the uh, three-run homer to Alonzo in the Scherzer injury game that blew the game wide open. Yeah. And then Gallegos is the guy who gave up the Alonzo walk-off home run that we have been talking about. Uh, how does that happen to you? Like twice in a season, blowing bad saves uh, to the same team. Obviously bad in different ways. The one in St. Louis was kind of the wheels coming off for the entire Cardinals team. Arenado with the throwing error. Gallegos didn't cover the bag on the Dom uh, ground ball that gave the Mets the lead. And then the Pete blown save is he gave up a 445 foot nuke yep. uh, to one of the most prolific power hitters in baseball. Yeah. It um, reminds so. me of the way they used to beat up on Brad hand uh, a couple times when he would come in and relieve before we took him in. Um, yeah. Cause Gallegos is good stuff. I like Gallegos, Gallegos is probably a top 10 closer in baseball. He's good. He's, he's good in the Mets. Good. The Mets have just this season have just been able to not bear down against him to not back down against him and to hit him hard um especially edwin diaz edwin diaz awesome. better by the way but yeah uh, significantly edwin elite uh, is what i'm hearing um despite the blown save again not his fault eduardo escobar man i i feel for eduardo escobar because he seems like such a good dude yeah another dude, he is, good, another good dude yes but after like the first two weeks of the season in which he hit like a bunch of doubles He's provided nothing to this team. He's down to 203 on the year. It's he bad. sat today for Guillaume, and I, I credit Buck Showalter for the last couple of weeks at least because this has really been now a month-long decline with Escobar, um, giving him a blow, moving him finally out of the five spot a few weeks ago. I credit Buck for finally doing that and now at least acknowledging that in the interim, while you rest someone like Escobar and let him get it right, you have someone who can actually hit there and that there's yeah. no problem with sitting Escobar in the midst of this for someone who will hit. Yeah. Like, thank God this team is winning because Escobar has provided very little power. He's got two home runs this season. The average is down around 200, like you said, and the defense has not been very good. It's been for most of the season been fine for the last week or so has been seemingly in, in, in sharp decline. Um, yeah. at third base um, and has really highlighted some of his issues over there that he doesn't really have great hands and he doesn't really have a whole lot of range. Uh, and if he's not hitting and the defense is that bad, he's kind of borderline unplayable. And so he played both games, the double header in Colorado, but he did get that rest in favor of Guillaume in the Sunday day game, um, which Luis Guillorme had a couple of hits. He had a three-hit game uh, in the win against the Rockies on the doubleheader. He had a two-hit game on the Sunday win. He made a really, really fine run-saving play at third base on Sunday. Um, Luis, we are fans of Luis. He has yeah. an average up in the 340s now. His OPS. over 15 starts of the year, and he's yeah, he, 340. He's been up, up over 400 since that over 15 start. Um playing some of the best infield defense around uh and he's also really real um he seems like a chill dude so i, yeah. I like rooting for him he's easy to root for well, um, the, he's, the beard's growing back so it's less difficult to look at him you know yeah. i'm more and familiar I, with the man i'm watching 
Yeah. And you and I were both at the game. He hit that home run, right? Which. Yes. We did not get a chance to meet, but that game was electric. Yeah. He endeared himself to like the entire fan base in 2019 when he hit that game tying solo shot, improbable home run off of Fernando Rodney, uh, which is lupus masterclass. uh, If you're familiar with bad news bears. No. Sorry. Never. Oh God. It's great. It is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's like the Sandlot, but if they played more baseball Interesting. Um, and if they were a little bit more raunchy, like the kids are pretty, pretty vulgar, but um, it's good. I'm sorry, but no, Guillaume, the home run off Rodney was electric and I like him. I, it I remained, mean, it remained his only career home run until like a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, on this tear, he's, he's collecting or no, he had one in Cincinnati. No. Oh, did he? Does he have three career homers? I know he I hit think one. He does. Yeah, Maybe he, I'm wrong. he might. Yeah, he might. Yeah, I think but, that sounds um, right, actually. But I just like Luis. Anyways, uh, yeah. back to the St. Louis series. Let's talk Pete Alonso's walk off. Yes. Um, no matter how cringy and goofy this man is with the shooting his bass is a helmet like a basketball as he stopped about 15 feet from home plate, just so goofy, um, so Pete just ridiculously Pete Alonzo. Uh, The home run call was good by Gary Cohen, as it always is. But his his crosstown um, rival, if you want to call it, his opposite number in the Bronx. You don't say that if you're uh, friends. Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael Kay had some choice words for the way that the SNY booth handled the call. Yeah. Uh, in which Michael K. Listen, Michael K. Is a play-by-play broadcaster. He has been doing Yankee games for a long time. He is also a talk radio host, a daytime sports talk radio host. Um, in which he has his show, the Michael K. Show. Uh, in which he and and usually at least one or two other guys are on there doing yeah. sports talk. Uh, I think it was Don LaGreca was one of the guys with him it's, in this it's particular Don LaGreca is like the Mets fan and Pete Rosenberg is like if Craig Carton didn't really like have a stake like a staked investment in like baseball and would and just says funny things. Um the two it, of them work off of Michael. Yeah. It was those three guys on this particular clip. Yeah. yeah. So they played the call on the the Michael K show and Michael K like is like has a very curious um tone confused almost as like like kind of uh like that arrogant kind of confused tone where you're like you know exactly what you're talking about yeah like disgusted i mean he really looked like he was like what am i watching without the pearls yeah he was like what am i listening to right now like what is is there steppage there is there steppage and that was that was the word of the clip steppage is I'll stand on my play-by-play broadcaster soapbox for a second. Steppage is when the guy you're with in the booth or guys talk at the same time as you and you step on each other's words. It is most egregious when an analyst does it to a play-by-play broadcaster. Sometimes people accidentally talk at the same time and it happens. But if a ball is in play, an analyst should not actively be talking 99% of the time because that is the play-by-play announcer's job to do. If the ball is in the air flying out of the ballpark, especially in a walk-off home run, keep your mouth shut so that they can have their call and have them and you know express the moment to the audience the way that they 
know how to do. Both Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, as soon as Alonzo made contact with the ball, audibly gasped or said, oh, oh boy, whatever it was. Oh, oh man. Oh God. Something to that effect. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, which is fine. You know, sometimes like a slip of the tongue happens, especially on loud contact like that. Keith has done it a lot in his career as a broadcaster, Ron less. So they both happened to do it on this play and they stepped over the first second, second and a half after contact of Gary's call. Uh, And from that point on, Gary had the call, made a great call uh, and the Mets went home winners. Kay went on to state that he knows Gary, that Gary is a perfectionist, and he believes that Gary probably had words with his analysts after they went off the air that day. I don't know who you think you are, man. I don't think Gary Cohen cared. I don't think he knows who Gary Cohen is if he thinks Gary Cohen cared. I mean, the whole thing that makes their dynamic work so well is that you have two pretty sharp analysts in Ron Darling and I think less so, but still to some degree, Keith Hernandez. Yeah, I, w- I don't think sharp is the adjective I'd use to describe Keith, but a competent one and one who's been around the block. He, be- he belongs in a booth, I would say. Yeah, He's absolutely. not sharp in the way that uh, Gary is sharp or maybe- Or um, Yale-educated Ron Darling is sharp. Yes, yeah. right. But he, he, I think he still be- belongs there. But my point more so is that you have those two guys and they're Mets legends and Gary Cohen, this lifelong Mets fan, you know, obviously in the eighties, this is when it started, but he has sort of been plopped into a booth surrounded by incredible people and he gets to work his magic and he does it so well next to Gary. He does it next to Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez. And there's something about that connection that they have with each other, where it not only leads to them making I think doing a great job bouncing off of each other on great plays 99% of the time. But if the team's getting blown out and like you're just watching to watch, they make it entertaining. They have media guide musings. Uh, they whip out baseball cards, right? Like they do things to keep you entertained. Um, and they need each other. I think like as much as I love Gary Cohen and think that he's the, the leader of that booth, I think that the experience that we have of watching them changes if really either Ron or Keith isn't there because we see how great they are together when it's the three of them. Um, like, you think Gary Cohen is going to like tell them off? I like, yeah. you're not going to do that. Those, these guys those are friends. These guys have been working together in the same booth since 2006. Yeah. At least. It might even be sooner than that. 2006 is when SNY started up. Like that's when the three got together though, because Ron Darling worked for the Expos right. and the Nationals before that. But yeah, right. I'm so sorry. these guys have been these guys have been doing their thing for what is that, sixteen years? Yes. Uh, these guys have been doing their thing together for sixteen years. They are not only uh, consummate professionals, Keith to a slightly lesser degree, but still a professional. Uh, these guys are very close friends. These guys have more fun than any booth in baseball together. Yeah. These guys know each other better than they probably know their wives in some extents. Like these guys are brothers. They love each other. They know what they're doing. Gary has been doing Mets play-by-play since the late 80s. He has worked with many different analysts. He has worked alongside other broadcasters. 
he is the definition of a consummate professional in the booth. And if he had issues with that steppage, then sure, I'm sure he said something, but I don't think at this point he has to. I think that they know that if what they did was wrong, they know not to do it again or to that extent, but I don't really think it was such egregious steppage that it requires uh, even analysis on the, on the part of another broadcaster. And Michael yeah, K. it's Michael K. Like, who are you? Michael I'm K. Is, is not a very good broadcaster, in my opinion. This is all opinion. Like, Michael K., if you're listening to this and you want to hire me to call Yankee games, by my, you know, it would be my pleasure. But Michael the, K., if you're listening to this, you're wrong and should stop. Just stop it. Michael K., if you're listening to this, you should probably be spending your personal time not listening to us. But thank you for listening if you are. Uh, I don't poverty think franchi- K. Michael K., if you're listening to this, you call games for a poverty franchise. Sorry. I don't think Michael K. is a very good play-by-play man. I don't. I think that his best years in the booth have been surrounded by good analysts. I think that they bring him up. I think that a good play-by-play man can elevate himself and can elevate the people around him regardless of how good they are, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that Gary Cohen does excellently. I think Todd Zeal is much better in the booth than he has any business being when he's alongside Gary. And I don't think Todd Zeal is a very good analyst, especially not a very good studio analyst when he's doing stuff for SNY in the studio, but he's good in the booth to his credit. Yeah. So I think that, I think, I I don't think that this is a problem with Gary. I don't think Gary is the quote unquote perfectionist at this point that you prescribe him to be to the point where he would have to talk down to people that he's worked 16 years in the same booth with. Yeah. I don't think that they have the same, I don't think that they have the kind of working relationship, the three of them, in which any one of the three of them feels like they can be above the other two. Right. And I think that's exactly what Michael Kay is suggesting. And I think that Michael Kay, that this says more about Michael Kay and the relationship that he has with his analysts than it does about Gary and the relationship that he has with his analysts that michael k has had a rotating roster of analysts over the past decade or so with the yankees not quite uh it's not a a very very long list but it's certainly longer than sny's list i mean paul o'neill carlos beltran this year david cone al leiter ken singleton Singleton. like there are more than a couple of names like the sny has has had fill-in analysts like right now Todd Zeal is the fill-in analyst but they have not had that many yeah in fact I'm I'm, I'm blanking I think has Cliff Floyd done a couple of games here and there like oh that's a good question I don't think it's I don't think Cliff Floyd has done it um I know Terry Collins has been trying his hand now and then and like hopefully that stops um yeah I know that I know that Cliff Floyd was around when David Wright was retiring and he did some stuff then um, Floyd also always, uh, Floyd has also done MLB Network, and yes. maybe that's where I'm conflating with it. Uh, he yeah. might also do Marlins stuff. Yeah, I mean, I like Cliff Floyd a lot. I hope he's doing something. But yeah, yeah no, I, I, your point is well taken, and I think very well put that Michael K needs more people, and that there's, I think, more turnover. Um, and yeah. you, you see a much, I think, more consistent product uh, on the other side of the. Uh, on the other side of town and there's like, a reason there's yeah. a reason why the sny booth has stayed as the same three guys for 16 years 
Whereas Michael Kay has worked with five, six, seven analysts over the past, over the same amount of time, probably more, probably guys we're, we haven't even mentioned, but the primary group for S and Y has stayed the same for good reason for 16 years. And I think it's a testament to how these guys work together. And I think suggesting that Gary would pull his analysts aside and explain to them like children why they can't talk over his home run call. uh, I think it it just, it irked me. And I think it irked you for the same reason. Yeah. And also just one closing point and then I'll, I'll stop like hypothetically speaking, right. Hypothetically speaking um, let's say that um, that is true. That Garrow is a perfectionist and he would do that. He would yell at them or what, what have you, whatever fantasy Michael K has constructed here uh, is true. You, what are you doing? Uh, like just conveying and telegraphing that to New York sports media. Like, you know, that everybody's going to be looking at that. Andrew Marchand is going to be writing about that. John Heyman's going to be quote tweeting it. Like other people are going to put you in timeout simply for trying to start drama with Gary Cohen. You know, like it, it, why are you thinking about it? Why are you acting on it? I just, I think that it's, it's like, it's just kind of just strange and strangely motivated. It is really strange. It is really strange that he would feel the need to comment about this. Right. And keep, that he would keep it out your mouth. It's also just like, you know, if, if he's great and you respect him, don't put him in a position where it looks like you're bashing him. It feels petty is what it feels like. It feels yeah. like it feels like he's looking at Gary Cohen more as a competitor than a peer. And it makes him sound jealous. It makes him sound like a guy who is trying to poke holes in a booth that has been critically claimed for 16 years trying to poke holes in it and be like, yeah, maybe there's some, maybe there's some, uh, some, uh, uh, I don't even know the word, but maybe, maybe there's, he's trying to poke holes in it. Maybe, maybe there's, um, maybe they're not as friendly as they think, as we think they are. Maybe, maybe they don't like each other as they seem. Maybe, maybe they're not as good as we think they are. Maybe they all secretly hate each other. Right. Your team's 29 and 11. Just go celebrate that. Like just in, you're doing even better than we are as good as we are. Like just, I don't yeah, know. Don't you I, go, don't you have to go and I don't know, uh, defend Josh Donaldson's racism or something? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, that's a much bigger problem than Michael K. I think given the way that Tim Anderson has been booed the first, at least the first two times, because this game is going on while we're recording this, but at least his first two times up to the plate, Yankee fans are booing him. And it's like, you know, I've, I'm, I'm familiar with the idea of like giving the guy who did something wrong an ovation, right? Like if they're going to give Josh Donaldson an ovation, the way Brewers fans uh, gave Josh Hader an ovation, like, I think that's really weird. I think we like, should, we should probably mention our own misgivings as a fan base in that regard to Jose Reyes. Yes. yes. We're yeah. also pretty bad. Yeah, the Reyes stuff for two years when he came back was bad. He got a standing ovation when he came back. Yeah. But just but, I mean, another guy that's just like, I didn't like this thing that someone really said to me and it set me off because it yeah. was Josh like, Donaldson. Okay. Yeah. If you're not familiar, if you're listening and you don't know that Saturday, Josh Donaldson and the Yankees got into a braces clearing, benches clearing brawl with uh, Tim Anderson and the White Sox. And Donaldson had tagged Anderson too hard and they had some words and it it turned into a bigger thing 
Donaldson had previously been in the American League Central briefly with the in the then Indians, now Guardians, and briefly with uh, less briefly with the Twins. Uh, and he has a history with Tim Anderson. They've beefed before. They've been part of benches clearing incidents before. Uh, Tim Anderson is a guy that there are people in baseball who don't like him because he likes to throw his bats when he hits long home runs um, and has some fun on the field. Donaldson is a guy that people in baseball don't seem to like because he's an asshole. Right. Uh, this is a thing. This is Liam Hendricks said this today, talking to the media before the doubleheader against the Yankees that um, that he had he's talked to members of four different clubhouses that Donaldson had been a part of and all four clubhouses didn't like Donaldson or something yeah. to that effect. Um, so this tends to follow Josh Donaldson wherever he goes, that he's not a very popular member of the teams he plays for. Yeah. Uh, he, when Tim Anderson broke out in the league, he was quoted in an article for sports illustrated in which he said he felt like he was Jackie Robinson or, or something to that effect. He said that he felt like he was playing that he was that being a, a, a highly prominent black player in baseball right now um, who was creating a lot of attention with his on-field play and with his personality on the field, he said something to the effect of feeling like Jackie Robinson. Uh, So now Josh Donaldson during the scrum on Saturday calls him to his face, Jackie, Jackie, Hey Jackie, what's up, Jackie? What's up, Jackie? Uh, Tim Anderson didn't like that because it, I can't quite articulate why I think, but it, it feels racist. Well, I think what a lot of it has to do with, and Bradford William Davis, I think said it best, really like most of my thoughts have uh, been echoed by much smarter people in general. So I don't have a whole lot to add, but like Bradford William Davis basically referred to it as uh, perverting Jackie Robinson's honor into mockery. And I think that's really what it comes down to, even if he's not, even if it isn't explicitly a matter of race, it's still a a, a way of ignoring and basically mocking in the context of another person's sacrifice, another person's uh, performance in the face of incredible adversity and prejudice. Um, I think that that's really, it's, it's not so much in what, I think he said to Donaldson or to Anderson as much as it was the fact that he never he in his in his mind there was never a place to think about why that may be wrong yeah um, yeah and he defended himself uh, post game and said that you know he's got a history with Tim Anderson and this is something he's called him before as if that makes it any better mm-hmm. um, in fact it makes it worse um and that this is like an inside joker. It's something that he calls him. Yeah. And they hate each other. So they inside jokes, that's, they're not inside jokes. Yeah. They're, you don't have inside jokes. Bad. You don't have inside jokes with people that you bully. Like this, uh, this was, this was done. Bradford was completely right. And just like you, Jack, I don't feel like I have anything particularly smart or insightful to say about this, especially nothing that's not been said before. Um, so like, right go read the opinions of people that are much, much smarter than us, uh, especially someone like Bradford, who I think can provide more insight on this topic because he doesn't look like us. He looks like Tim Anderson. Uh, so go read his thoughts because they were good thoughts. Um, but like to the point of thinking that it's even slightly acceptable to say because you've said it before and as if that's a way to justify it, 
it's it's not Liam Hendricks again going back to this because I think it was a really really ruthless tirade that he went on I saw the clip on Twitter earlier today yeah he he was calling it horseshit he was like yeah the fact that he thought that this was an inside joke you don't have inside jokes with people that you hate yeah. like this this in my opinion was even if Donaldson didn't say it because he thought it was racist which the intent doesn't matter yeah um even if he fully had thought it out in his brain and said yep that's not racist i'm gonna let myself say that uh he still said it as a way to instigate yeah he is an instigator he likes to play a little dirty he likes to get in people's faces he likes to play in a way that tends to lead itself to incidents like this yeah and i think people who are really so quick to defend donaldson are not really people who are as interested in defending donaldson as they are in avoiding having a discussion about how anderson felt that's yeah i think i like donaldson is really not a person in any context that you would think uh did the right thing uh he's just not a good guy Um, i'm gonna I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pull it sort of full circle. Yeah. And pull it back to a yes network angle here. David Cohn, now a part of the Sunday night baseball booth. Mm-hmm. Tim Anderson comes up, gets booed in his first at bat on Sunday night baseball tonight by Yankees fans. The booth starts talking about it. David Cohn puts it as good as anyone can put it. He said, Tim Anderson felt disrespected by it. And that's all that should matter. And that's all that matters is that it doesn't matter the intent of Donaldson. It doesn't matter what was going on in Donaldson's brain. What matters is he said it and that it was, it, it, it was not good to Tim Anderson, that it, he felt disrespected by it, that him and people around him felt instigated and disrespected by it. And that quite a few people, Tim Anderson included backed up by his manager, Tony LaRussa, Tony LaRussa, excuse me, felt that it at very least had racist undertones if it wasn't flat out blatantly racist. So that's really the line that we need to draw at. We don't really need to analyze this any further is that you can't really defend it because the way that it, it made Tim Anderson feel is something that we should not be trying to defend. Yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty much all I got on it. Um, yeah. Good week for a a good week for the Mets, at least. Um, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) great segue back. Like it, I'd like it if uh, people weren't doing stuff like this so often, because like, um, you know, yeah, never fun to talk about. Um, And I mean, you and I kind of briefly touched upon it before we started recording today. That like we can provide context and we can bring it up, but it's not really worth bringing more analysis to the table because like i said people far smarter uh than us have given much more concise and much more good for lack of a better term thoughts on the matter and it's not really worth us trying to provide our white guy opinions on yeah that too definitely um but we can we can pull it back to the mets now and we can kind of go back to a more fun type of conversation we can talk about how good they've played baseball wise and how maybe it might not last because you were doing some some research into their savant pages and uh it's it's like weirdly not pretty yeah i mean it's 
I'd hope it starts getting better. I think Starling's hitting the ball harder. Mark Canna is definitely hitting the ball harder. Um, and that's something that has sort of gone by the wayside because Nimmo just continues to do what Nimmo does and McNeil continues to do what McNeil does. And Lindor continues to do what Lindor does, although he he really also has been hitting the ball hard lately. It's not a – there were some conversations, I think, after he struck out in the loss on Tuesday night to St. Louis about – um, you know, basically how he wasn't, how he couldn't come through in at-bats like that. And um, I think that for the brief moment that we were back to talking about and rehashing this question of whether Francisco Lindor was worth it, he began to hit and show us that he was. Um, I thought that was really cool. I'm going to just, I mean, if I'm picking one moment um, that I think across the guys who've been scuffling, you sort of see something really working better is just the way that Starling Marte came out uh, on Saturday and hit that, hit that home run. Um, I mean, that was just a bomb yeah. and it was a bomb after three days on bereavement after a he good streak the, that he'd been working on. Yeah. He, he missed the, entire, the box and hits. Yeah. He missed the entire series against St. Louis because he was uh, mourning the loss of his grandmother with his family. And he comes back joins the team in Colorado, first game of the doubleheader, first pitch he sees, second batter of the game, and hits it like 440 feet away to left center. Um, wait a second. We said that they hadn't homered in Colorado. They absolutely yeah, did. did homer in Colorado. That That's was the mistake. one, I think. Correcting a fact error, Starling Marte homer in Colorado. But they didn't hit any after that. Right. I, I, mean, the big, I mean, the big thing, really, the big story that was weird about Colorado was the Mets pitching, and not necessarily the prettiest part of the Mets pitching, held them below two runs twice in a series after that had never happened to them in nearly like 80 games in a row. Yeah. The Rockies had, the Rockies had scored two runs or more in like, yeah, in 80 something games in a row at home. And the yeah. Mets held them to under two runs twice in a series. Back to back days. The Rockies scored 12 runs in this series and 11 of them came in one game. Yeah. You don't do that. That's that's and that's it was literally hard. Brian Servin. Yeah, pretty Brian much. Brian was serving him. Like Brian it, it was wasn't serving like, up some runs. I thought Charlie Blackman was gonna basically like turn back into 2015 Charlie Blackman against us. Like I was scared. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, he's really not that good, but like, you know, it is Colorado and really weird things tend to happen when they go there. Do you remember how like who was it? Who was it that hit the one home run off Degrom in his like three run game? It was Rymel Tapia. Right, right, yeah. Someone who like never homers. Like shout, shout out, shout out Mick Tapia on Twitter. I think he's changed his. He's a he's a Rockies fan who really loved Rymel Tapia. I think he might have changed his Twitter handle now that Rymel Tapia's on the Blue Jays. Mick Richick. <laughs> Mick, Mick Richick is not something I'd want to eat, man. I'm not no. gonna lie. Um, Mick Richick. <laughs> Uh, can I tell you what Connor Joe's a fun player? He's great. He he's, oh, he's, he's great. Just... He's he's uh he survived cancer and now he just sprays the ball all over the field and he was a nuisance in this series. Yeah. Oh man, and the the Rockies are such an interesting team because they're never good. They're yeah. never good. They have maybe the most incompetent front office in all of core four sports. It's bad. Yeah. The Rockies front office is so weird with the way that they make decisions. They are not what I would call competent. They're not serious. They're an unserious franchise. They're a bit of an unserious franchise, as some modern day uh, analysts might put it. 
on yeah. the bird app. Uh, however, they find some fun players. Connor Joe is a fun little player. CJ Crone is having a monster season. Yeah. And the Mets saw it in this series. He homered against the Mets. He had three hits in the first game of the doubleheader. Shout uh, out to Ottavino for punching him out today. I mean, that was big. That's yeah, Ottavino, who we now know likes to have them dogs out. Yeah, he does like <laughs> these dogs get barking when he's that was that was I, I, I love I love this team. I love this team. There is not a single player on this team that is just not a ball of personality and energy at yeah. certain points. They're so fast. They're a fascinating bunch of guys. Ottavino walks around the ballpark with his feet out without socks or shoes because he wants to get a feel for the way that the, the field feels and, and he, and it keeps him grounded or whatever, some meditation crap, but uh, he, hey, <laughs> hang on, hang on. If it works, it works. If it works, it works. He's been fine this year. Yeah. And I, spent, I don't know, they were just, I don't know why now out of, in the, the eight weeks so far of the season, that's now we've decided to learn that he be, he keeps them foots out, but I don't know. Uh, I think we got to talk about Luis Guillorme because we talked about Luis Guillorme. I think we got to talk about him in a little more depth yes. because he has been phenomenal. We did talk about him. He's batting 415 since he started the season over for, over 15. Uh, he's batting 338 on the season. His OPS is approaching 870. The sl- he's not slugging. It's all singles and walks, which is fine. But yes. he gets on base. The on base is carrying. The on base percentage is carrying the OPS right now. Yeah, he's getting on base very close to 45% of the time, which plays, especially for a guy in the low part of the batting lineup and a guy who provides great defense on the other side of the ball. I think the conversation we have to have about Luis Guillorme is not necessarily about Luis Guillorme because we did talk about him earlier, yeah. but it's about the bench in general. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's it's in a golden age right now, is it not? Uh, in what regard? In what sense? I mean, it's got Mazika, it has Guillorme, and it has Travis Jankowski, who are just well, three of the most compelling case studies in Met baseball from the last like ten years. Like what what Jank does is unheard of. He hits the ball so slowly and runs so fast that he outruns the fielders and makes it to first every time. Like these are such interesting figures and they're all here on our roster. Well, Travis Jankowski is like one for his last 13 or something. So listen, listen, listen. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he gets on base every single time. He did have a decent start to his season, um, but I'm running out of, I mean, he swung at a 3-1 pitch today that was right over the middle of the plate, and he hit it about 330 feet to left center. Like, he shouldn't have met Shakira. I, I agree. <laughs> I can't believe that tweet of all tweets. Yes. It's always, was, it's always the low effort ones. And that one – It's always the screenshots. It's always the borderline, like, just stealing other now, Yeah, that was our first tweet over 1,000 likes – I think we've had one or two before, but it's been a while. Well, we had the breakdown, which yeah. got a thousand. And I think one of your Bernie edits where Bernie was sitting on the dugout with the five horsemen or whatever from 2015. I think yeah. that one got like 1300. I think that one did numbers. That yeah. was a great Photoshop. Me when my tweet gets 13 retweets. Oh boy. This one's doing numbers. Ooh, numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was ridiculous. The bench is 
listen, I like I like how just weird Patrick Mazika is because it's not a good swing, but he he just hits line drives, and he is clutch. He had the homer against the Mariners. He had a two run double against the Rockies in Game One of doubleheader. Uh, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't have to. He's apparently a pretty good receiver behind the plate. Doesn't make sense to me. I'm not complaining. It doesn't matter. He's fun. Yeah. Luis Guillorme. Yeah. Luis Guillorme has 20 grade power. I can't tell you the next time he's going to hit a ball over a fence or in a gap, but he hits line drives that dump down in front of outfielders. Mm-hmm. And he hits little seeing eye ground balls through holes and he walks and he works nine or 10 pitch at bats and he plays really good defense. And it's great. And I have no complaints. The rest of the bench, Travis Jankowski can't hit. That's fine. He can play a good center field. He can run. Uh, and he can run really well. Yeah. And I don't know what's going on with JD and Dom. And that's the yeah. rest of the bench. Right. JD and Dom right now is probably the and and maybe potentially soon to some extent Escobar if we have to continue the part-time thing. But I think JD Dom is JD and Dom especially. Like you're looking at, I think like I see two people that like just at any point can can break out and get something going. But I also when I just see the at bats and I see the results. I'm simultaneously wondering if they have any place on the roster, you know, when JD swings and misses at 92 from a lefty, it's like, what are we doing? Um, you know, when, when Dom has misplays at first base, it's like, what are you doing? Like if he can't even stretch sometimes it's, 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 it's a bit of both, but I'm really hopeful that they can break out. I'm, I'm less hopeful. I think that JD is the more likely guy who can break out right now. I think that he still is hitting the ball fairly hard. Didn't really have any good at bats today against Austin Gomber. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, he's a weird case because I don't think he's getting really enough at bats um, so that we can really iron out whether the hard hit rates and such yeah. are going to provide any kind of value. Because he's Eric hitting the ball Campbell right now. That's what yeah, it is. He is hitting the ball on the ground quite a bit. Yeah. Um, he's also the only guy who seemingly hits the ball hard against left-handed pitching right now. Yeah. Uh, that's a right-handed hitter, I should say, because yeah. the two best hitters against lefties this season for the Mets have been Brandon Nimmo and Jeff McNeil, which makes no sense. Um, and then Love in that. Dom's yeah. case, in Dom's case, it's a really, it's, it's hard for me to grapple with Dom Smith because I want him to be successful so bad. He's a really good dude. He has had such – he has had so many fun moments as a Met. He was um, our best hitter one year. Like, yeah. It there was, was a, a time year. where everybody wanted this dude sticking around. Like, It was a fake year, but it was a year that happened nonetheless. Those yeah. are 200, 230 at-bats you can't take away from him in which he was well, – Of course. I, I wouldn't suggest it's legitimate, but it yeah. is something that people acknowledge. It happened. He yeah. what what did he finish eighth in, in MVP votes that season or something to that I effect? So. He, I think I, I would never think that he would get I don't think he's ever gonna get back to something like that, but like no, he hasn't hit for power since. Yeah, that's the he, big thing. Yeah. This guy, I, I I can't remember the last time I saw him square up a ball in the air. Yeah. He hasn't hit a home run since Vietnam. Yes. I don't know how people can keep defending him because it's been like 400, 500, not good at bats. Like the last now season plus since 2020 ended, Dom has been bad at hitting, genuinely bad. And 
maybe he's a guy that does need to play every day. And that's not going to happen either. Right. And he it, said so much. This week. He said just as much this week that he wants right. to be playing every day. He wants it to be with the Mets, but he is a little bit upset that he's not playing consistently. And that's a shame because he's a guy that is a high makeup guy. He plays a good first base. There is probably a team in baseball that will give him everyday reps. It's not going to be the Mets. And we don't really have a place right now where he can be sent for any kind of value. Dom's got no trade value right now because teams around baseball are seeing the fact that this guy really can't hit right now. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be said about the possibilities that have come up that he can be optioned now. I mean, it's really becoming a discussion at least if, if they need more thump off of the bench than Dom Smith, and they can just sign Matt Carpenter right now, for example. Um, I mean, you, you have Dom Smith with power in the minor leagues right now. You have Daniel Polka, who yeah. is the same kind of first base, left-handed throwing, left-handed hitting guy who has good plate discipline and can walk. Um, but the thing that Polka brings to the table that Dom is not bringing to the table is Polka is built like a linebacker and can hit a baseball 450 feet. Yes. He's our Vogelbach. He's a Vogelbach type. Yeah, he's he's our weapon. He is a bench bat who you look for to be Matt Stairs every once in a while and hit a home run. That is like that. That's the same. That's what we're looking at in terms of great call. No, it's it's a great call. Yeah, that's what he. If in if we weren't now in a DH league, uh, I think that genuinely there is an argument that Polka provides more value to this team than Dom Smith right now. If you buy that Polka can hit major league pitching with any sort of power, right? Um, which like, this is a guy who hit 27 homers in a big league season before yeah, and is crushing triple A right now. Yeah. Or if you just want to see what Nick Plummer is really made of, yeah. you can check right now. I mean, which, really might, is- which might be actually the, the, the move that makes more sense because then that kind of nullifies the need to even have Travis Jankowski on the roster anymore because Plummer plays a decent center field. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to select a con, you know, you wouldn't have to DFA anybody. Yeah. Um, because he's I, right there. I mean, I, I think Plummer should be here already. I re- I do. And if it comes at the cost of Dom, if it comes at the cost of Jankowski, I'll live either way. Mm-hmm. Obviously a more, more agreeable to part with Jankowski right now, but uh, I don't know. I think Plummer deserves to be here. Plummer can yeah. Plummer, can, we, he can hit. He can hit. He can. Yeah, he really can. I think that between Plummer coming up to potentially do what we've wanted Dom or Jankowski to be more of, um, and Beatty potentially coming up um, at some point this year and filling in if Eduardo Escobar really isn't the answer. I mean, it's a much more remote. I think it's it's it's, or I guess it's further out of the realm of possibility than talking Plummer right now, right? I think first of all, I think it would be more Vientos than Beatty this year. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. I just, I don't know if they really see him as a third baseman, so to speak. I think Beatty is, yeah, that's true. But I think still Vientos is probably more of the JD type than the Escobar type. I still think Beatty's a year away. Like he hasn't even touched soil in AAA yet. And it's going to be probably a couple more months before he does that. I'm looking at my phone right now. Tim Anderson just hit a three run homer. I love this man. Okay. That is, that is actually that's beautiful. Oh man, that's fantastic. that is 
Shit, I, I don't know what the score of the game is, but like talk it about score, it was scoreless. He it he, was he just basically thumped him. It was it was scoreless until the top of the eighth. The White Sox had put two up, and then he home. It was against our old buddy Miguel Castro. Oh no, that's okay. Man. So it, it turned what had been a scoreless game, and then was a two nothing game into yeah. a five nothing game in the eighth. So he ended it. He basically put it out of reach. Even yeah. better than putting them ahead, he ended it. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's, that's that's great. That oh, is actually I, great. I can't wait to watch that highlight back because I I know he shushed the crowd or something. That I must have been so satisfying for him after getting booed all night for having a racism done to him. Yep. Must have felt great. It is great. I think that that's honestly, I want to get to that. Like I want to get to that ASAP. You got a guy to remember or yeah, have we, yeah we covered everything. I think, I think yeah. we've covered pretty much everything. Yeah. Put Nick Plummer in a Mets uh, roster. Um, sorry that Dom Smith is feeling stilted by not playing very often, but also he can't hit. So uh, my sympathies are, limited we'll see how thomas sapucky goes this week okay let's remember some guys um yesterday was may 21st which is a holiday in mets land as i'm sure you know because it is the anniversary of the most improbable extra base hit in mets history hit by someone not named bartolo cologne and i think it might be even more improbable than bartolo cologne hitting a home run it is when day sung ku hit a triple off of randy johnson I think it was a double. Or a double. It, 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 when he smoked a ball into the cap against Randy Johnson. That yeah. is who I'm remembering, Daesung Koo, who is the Korean-born left-handed pitcher who played for the Mets in 2005 and took a elderly Randy Johnson, but still you know a very effective Randy Johnson, um, deep into the right center field gap. That's a good uh, call. Well, you remember what he did after the double, right? It was he scored – on uh yeah he 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 dove home into into home plate with his uh pitcher's batting cage jacket that's right he, on, he uh, took third on a sack bunt and it was in front of the plate and Posada ran out 20 feet for the ball for some reason and just never checked home plate so Ku was like all right let me just try and score and he literally embarrassed like that entire team yeah this was Bobby after franchise that whole sequence was after um tim mccarver called the plate appearance the biggest give up at bat of all time ku was standing roughly six feet away from home plate um lefty on lefty against a future hall of famer uh and he just got the the barrel to a, a fastball over the middle of the plate and one hopped it to the fence in deep right center um so that's who i'm remembering that happened again, May 21st, 2005. And um, he did suffer a shoulder injury while yeah. sliding into home plate on that play. Uh, that was the last time he would bat in a major league uniform. And the following season, he um, went back to Korea and then yeah, actually they, wound yeah. up. And then he also wound up playing in, in Australia, which was cool. So 2005 was his, a lone season in major league baseball and it provided us with one of my favorite highlights that i get to see every season on may 21st i think who played till he was like 45 professionally or something like that it was like he's he's currently 52 right um 
he only spent the one season, his age 35 to 36 season um, as a Met. Um, I can try to pull up his international. I've got record. it. I've got it right here. I'm looking this up. He was playing in the Australian League. As a 48-year-old. No. Yeah, as a 48-year-old in 2019. Yeah. Yep. Like, I, he, he got his due. And, and that was yeah. after, like, four years off. Yeah. He – I – that's a that's such a good call, man. I I really thought you were going the Cologne route, especially because he pitched, and everyone decided that they wanted him back. I mean, it's just we're gonna be that's just an annual joke. Cologne literally probably only makes his pitching videos now because he knows that we're gonna start talking about it. Um, like, yeah, I thought you were going the Cologne route, but no, nah, the, uh, I'm over yeah. the Bartolo Cologne thing. Yeah. I'd much rather I would much rather remember Day Sun Koo. I, I agree. I think that we remember Bartolo a little bit too much. Too much. Not, I think not on a personal level, literally just like it's as a fan base. I think I, I also think that it's actually slightly more impressive that Ku got that hit because it was his only major league plate appearance. It came against a Hall of Famer left on left. Bartolo Cologne had been hitting for, for a few years as a Met. Yeah. Uh, he had been working on it and it was like, a hang and change up from James Shields. Yeah. Who yeah. was like cooked at that point. So, well, that, that was what cooked him. That was the final nail in the coffin. And then on, you know what he got traded for? He, who he got traded for? Um, Fernando Tatis Jr., the son of Fernando Tatis. Yes, that's right. Son of Fernando Tatis. With, uh, do you see the stuff with Juan Uribe Jr.? Yeah, I do. It's another guy to remember. That's, he's going to the White Sox, I think. Yeah, Juan Uribe Jr. signing with the White Sox and people, <laughs> People were like tweeting, like, is he related to one Uribe? Yeah. It's incredible. Yes. That's, that's God. Yeah, that did happen. Which is what um, I was referencing with, I believe it was a John Heyman tweet about yes. when uh, James Shields was traded to the White Sox and Fernando Tatis Jr. as a teenager was sent back to the Padres. I think John Heyman quote tweeted a, a, a tweet about the trade and said that the young Tatis Jr. is the son of Fernando Tatis. Thank you, John. Very thank you, cool. John. Very thank you. Had had no clue, John. Thank you. He was Big thinking um, Who are you? Who do you got? Okay. So my remember my guy who I'm going to be remembering. Um, you may have you may already know the answer to this because it's been circulating, but I'm not sure if all of our listeners do. So I'm going to give you a trivia question, basically, and like if you can answer it, you'll have the guy, and I'll do the thing. But basically, the last time the Mets shut out the Rockies at Coors Field was April of 2010. It was in April of 2010. Or no, I believe it was May of 2010. I will get the specific date right now, but do you know who pitched that game? Oh, man. Okay. I think maybe, but I'm also thinking... April 15th. Yeah, sorry. April 15th. It was April 15th. Then I think... I don't think I know because I'm thinking of a a specific well-pitched game at Coors, but it definitely happened more recently than 2010. And it was pitched by Dylan G. Yeah. And, I, and it's not. It's not Dylan, Dylan G. Um, so was, they must have given up a run in that game. Because didn't Dylan G go like eight shutout innings at Coors once? Uh, are you thinking of Logan Verrett? It was, yeah. Yeah, Logan Verrett did do that. That's not my guy, though. But, yeah, that was, I think, 2015. Like, Harvey got scratched. And yes, it, was just, Lo- it was Logan Verrett, yes, yeah. is who I was thinking of. So I knew that was more recent than 2010. Uh, I mean, if you gave me enough time to think of guys who were on that 2010s roster, that 2010 roster, 
I could probably come up with it. If it's a guy worth remembering, was it like a like a Hisanori Takahashi type situation or no, not really? It was more so a guy that I just don't really remember that often and think that I should because of how prominent he was. And who was that? Mike Pelfrey. Oh. Yeah. He was really, really good in 2010. It was like the one year that he really had it. Um, and then I think, yeah, I think in 2012, they basically told him because he was awful in 2011. Like they told him, you're the five starter. And like, if you don't get off to a good start, we will be replacing you. Um, and he, his first five inning or five outings, he had like a 220 ERA or something. And then, yeah, he, he, was... and then he needed to undergo like Tommy John surgery. Yeah, he started really strongly that season, yeah. I remember. Currently licking my hand illegally while yep. on the mound. I was confused was... for a second, but he did that a lot. All the time. Weird. I Umpires... would hate to be in the dugout with him. Umpires were constantly telling this guy to stop licking his hand. Yeah. Constantly. He would, he would put the whole thing in his mouth. It, would, it was really foul. Yeah, it was really like he wanted you to see that he was doing it. It was gross. He did it um, while he was like stalking around the mound, like what Max Scherzer does. Yeah, except instead of Scherzer's, like it would be like, you know, Pelfrey would strike out like six guys per nine innings. Like, he would he just get a low he ball. Get, he was, he was yeah. just like, you know. He'd, he'd throw 91 and get a bunch of ground balls. And then when he was off, it was home runs. Like he would groove things and that's when he'd get beat. Like, yeah, he was also six foot seven huge wichita state uh yeah. i think he do you play basketball for them too that feels right uh maybe not i don't, I don't know. know i he feel was, like that would have been a like thing first round yeah it might have been i feel like like, that like been kirk been. new in high school played football mike pelfrey yeah. who played basketball yeah that's fair um yeah he i don't know to be a pitching coach for them though i think so i th- i think that's right i he he ended up like actually sticking around in baseball for like quite a while after his career with the mets I think it ended in, I think, I want to say 2016. Um, yeah, he, he bounced around with the Twins for a while. Yeah. yeah. 2017, yeah. It was, it was, he pitched till he was a White Sox. Um, he, he was he, only, he was, he was out of baseball as a 33-year-old, which is not that old. Yeah. It's not that old, but also he had been in the league for 12 years. Yeah, he came up as a 22-year-old in 06. He really brought it. Um but yeah, Mike Pelfrey, man. I, we've come a long way since Mike Pelfrey being our ace. But uh, yeah, now it's like our, our three starter would probably kick Mike Pelfrey's ass. No, I think, I think yes, probably. Carrasco, yeah, probably. He is I mean, still Bassett. Sorry, Bassett. He is still uh still the pitching coach for Wichita State. Go Shockers! Yeah, Pelfrey always got talked about too. I think as sort of just a really, really like smart nice guy who just got so nervous on the mound and got like couldn't get out of his head but yeah he kind of had the Stephen Matz thing yeah. going on where things just kind of spiraled on him yeah he would have innings where he'd like balk a bunch of times because he would just get so anxious um, yeah but he I mean he really he was he was a very good guy I'll say that even if even if he wasn't uh the pitcher that the Mets had drafted so to speak yeah but yeah that's yeah, that's Mike Pelfrey. That's that's my spiel. A couple of good guys remembering today. 81, man. Yeah. That's 162 guys. That's a full season. We got a full season's worth of games worth of guys. Incredible. That's cool. Yeah. And um, 
finally kind of a chunky super episode we haven't done a long one in a while but now that we're both done with school we can i think go a little bit longer than the 35 45 minutes that we've been for the last few months but they give us these kinds of stories to talk about dude this is this was a this this was a great week yeah chunky week here on pge this has been 81 with a couple of college graduates yeah here a couple of college grads who'd have thought who would have not me certainly not me He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Libowitz and Mets fan. Have a pleasant week.